0: I think about so much as we approach our anniversary. Uh, One of the things I was thinking about was five years ago, sitting in a car with one of my best friends. Uh, He's the godfather to one of my sons, and uh, he's really been with me through almost every season in life. Through crazy days in college, to seeing me get married, to uh, being with me, losing my my first wife. Uh, This guy has been with me through every high and every low. Uh, But this time, it wasn't a high or it wasn't a low. It was a a nauseating middle. I was sitting in his car, and he just saw how nervous I was that in two weeks, we were going to start this thing called Renaissance Church. Now, my friend is not one for letters, but that day, he wrote me a letter, and he included a scripture that I've read about 600 times. But that day, it hit me almost like the words of God were jumping off of the page, screaming them in my face. It's a scripture that you've probably seen crocheted in your grandmother's house somewhere, or uh, at a co-worker's desk on uh, one of these cheesy Christian posters, and it comes from Joshua 1 and 9, and these words were a salve to a nervous church planter. Haven't I commanded you to be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. That day I sat in the car uh, reading these words, and as the old saints would say, uh, I'm a living witness. One of the things that uh, Renaissance doesn't have that I wish we had more of, we got my parents here, not calling you guys old, but uh, uh, to have people with a little bit more experience uh, that have walked through some things, they've seen some things. They've been low and they've been high, and they see every single season that God does not forsake his children. Now, I've seen God do incredible things, and we'll talk about some of this later. God has blown the doors off of my brain in the last five years, and here's my hope for all of us, individually and collectively, that in the next five years, it's marked in your life by boldness and courage to go in whatever direction God wants to take you. Here's what I know to be true. The presence of God will be with you wherever the will of God wants to take you. The presence of God in your life will be with you wherever the will of God wants to take you. And my prayer for the next five years is that we're bold and we're courageous. Let me pray for us before we really get into today. God, our good and gracious Father, uh, you know why everybody is here today. You know the thoughts in our minds. You know what's racing uh, in our brains. You know the concerns we have. You know the, the joys we have. Father, I pray that in this time, we'd be able to to hear from you and hear exactly what it is that you would have for us to hear. Lord, use me in a way that I could never take credit for myself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I want to talk about today, I want to start off talking about something today that I'm no expert in. It's something uh, called physics and light. Now, if you were to check my transcript, you would know that I'm nowhere near an expert in anything scientific. But in uh, 1921, Albert Einstein won a Nobel Peace Prize for talking about light. Now, up to that point, everybody in the scientific community understood light to be functioning in waves, right? So we have an ozone layer that filters out some waves uh, of light, so not all of the waves come through. If it did, we'd get burnt up. And for hundreds of years, this is the way people understood light light functions in waves. You can measure it. You can see it. And if you don't know what waves are, this is what, these are what waves are. That's me. That is me. I was spinning, Kelly. I was spinning before. All right, that has nothing to do with uh, the message. People doubted me. I just wanted to let y'all know that once upon a time, I was... <laughs> But everybody understood that light operated in waves. It was an open and shut thing. If you want to see light, you measure the wavelengths of them. Einstein comes along and says, yes, you're right. Light can be measured in waves. But light can also be measured in particles. What's a particle? A particle is a microscopic speck of radiation, which is why that for some people, if you sit out in the sun too long, you can get skin cancer because you have too many microscopic specks of radiation hitting your skin, hitting your unprotected skin, and it could lead to skin cancer. Now, the scientific community was in an uproar because they're saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that one beam of light is both waves and particles? But particles are not waves, and waves are not particles. To which Einstein responded, absolutely. It was so brilliant and so profound, his research, that he won the Nobel Peace Prize. And to this day, light is something that is the foundation of our life. If you were to remove light from us, we would all be dead in about three weeks. Very encouraging way to start this message. (laughs) If we didn't have light, the plants would die. If the plants died, we wouldn't have any oxygen, and then we would exist no more. But here's what I found to be true in watching YouTube videos about light this week. (laughs) Light is the source of our life. No one understands it fully, but you don't have to understand it fully to enjoy it and to benefit from it. You can wander the halls in MIT, take a quantum physics class by some nerdy dude from a different country, and they will tell you that nobody understands fully what light is, but nobody would ever dismiss light just because you don't understand it fully. Now, why are we talking about this? When John introduces Jesus in His Gospel of the Gospel of John, he talks about Jesus much in the same way that Einstein started talking about light that there is one God who exists in multiple ways at the same time. Here's what John says about Jesus that Jesus is God that has come to earth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet darkness did not overcome it. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What John opens up his gospel with is that God exists equally in different ways. And God is a father and God is a son and God is a Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is not the son and the son is not the father. Now, why did I torture myself reading physics textbooks this week? I didn't want anybody to come in here today. And as we look at the profundity of what John is saying in his gospel, I don't want anybody to dismiss what John is saying, the claim he's making just because you can't fully understand it. Much like light, God is the source of our life, no one fully understands him, but you don't have to fully understand him to enjoy him and to benefit from him. Now, what John is talking about in these first couple of verses in, uh, in his gospel is something that for centuries theologians have called the incarnation, that God has come to be with us. Uh, and there's different names for it, but the incarnation is that God himself put on flesh and is now dwelling with us. That it's one God who exists in different ways, and this is a source of our life. Now, if you don't understand this, you won't really understand anything about Christian theology, as a matter of fact. Um, I've met a lot of people who've tried to read through the whole Bible and made it like 9% through. 9%ers, put your hands up. How many? There we go. We got some honest people. What happens is people start in Genesis. They make it to Exodus. Sometimes maybe you get to Leviticus and then you're definitely done in Leviticus. <laughs> But I heard a pastor friend say this, and it makes so much sense. None of these books in the Old Testament really make full sense unless you have first gotten a picture of what John is showing us in these verses. If you really want to read the Bible, start in John, and then go outward and start in the Old Testament and other books of the Bible. And what John does in these first 18 verses is gives us a prologue, introduces us to the character of who Jesus is, and this has profound implications for everything in Christianity. Nothing makes sense unless you get this. Last year during Good Friday season, I was talking to someone, and he said, "Yo, I've always struggled in like on Good Friday, and why Christians think it's good. Uh, I've always struggled that Jesus died for our sins. It kind of just feels messed up. Really, what was behind that statement is this belief that like Jesus was, you know, like one of God's people that He sent out, and that Jesus just drew the the short straw, and He ended up having to die for our sins." but that God, that God himself was farming out the most difficult work. What the incarnation means is that it wasn't some distant person that died on the cross, but that it was God himself taking the punishment and the wrath of himself, uh, and taking all of the, the weight of our sins on the cross. It wasn't some minion that he sent out, but it was him himself. He took it. Uh, years ago, you guys have seen this movie, and if you haven't, you should have seen it already. John Q with uh, uh, Denzel Washington. And Denzel Washington's son gets sick, he needs a new heart transplant, and he busts up in the hospital, kicking the door, waving the 4-4, and uh, he says, yo, nobody's going anywhere until my son gets a heart. Uh, I'll never forget, uh, right after that movie, my pops called me, and this is probably where I get the little, the thug tear, emotional from, my pops is a crier, and uh, he called me and my brother, I don't know who he called first. Um... And uh, he just said, yo, you know you would have had that heart, right? (laughs) And then he hung up. That was the conversation. (laughs) There's emotion, and then there's too much emotion. It's like, ah, yeah, you would have had that heart. Goodbye. (laughs) But but what do you see in that? What you see in that is that in John Q, uh, there's nothing, there's no limit to what I would go to for you. On the cross, you don't see one of God's people that he designated to do his hard work. You see God himself willing to give it all for his children. It reframes the whole gospel narrative. It reframes the whole New Testament. It reframes the way you think about God completely. And if you don't understand the incarnation, that God himself was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, then you wouldn't understand anything in Christianity. Now, it's our anniversary. It's a fifth anniversary, and I got five brief Ish points uh, about the incarnation and all of the implications that if this is true, this is what it means. The first is that it means that God takes the first step. God takes the first step. Most people that I've spoken to have a woefully insufficient view of God and their relationship with Him. Most people understand that God's activity in their life is kind of limited to forgiving them for the stuff that they messed up in. So in your life, there's things you shouldn't do that you do. There's things you should do that you don't do. Most people operate with a functional theology that the best you can hope for from God is that God will excuse you from your sins. If that was true, that would be great. Like if you really had confidence, if you really, really, truly had confidence that all of your sins, past, present, and future were nailed to that cross, it would radically change your life. But what John is saying is not to cancel that, but it's in addition to that, that God's activity in your life is not limited to just excusing you, but it's also there to enable you. What what do we see in these first few verses about uh, what it says about Jesus? It says, in the beginning was a word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him and apart from him, not one thing was created that had been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. Verse 4 saying that in Jesus' life, in that life was the light of men. Scripture here refers to Jesus being a light that has come into darkness. I don't know what's the last thing you've ever done uh, in the dark. Anybody ever try to get dressed in the dark and you come out looking crazy? Darkness implies inability. Darkness essentially means inability. Uh, 18 years ago, when September 11th happened, those who were down there uh, would tell you that the smoke and the fog and the debris was so heavy that you could not see your hand right in front of your face. Now, what is that? It's an inability to operate in any level that's meaningful. When John says that we Jesus came to be a light in darkness, he's saying that Jesus came to be a light. Among a people who couldn't see their hands in front of their faces. God's activity in your life is not limited to just excusing you. God takes a first step to enable you to live the life that you're supposed to be living and to have a relationship with God. Now, that does two things for us. One, it should be a great deal of humility. It means that nothing about your life now is just because you're a disciplined person. That you just, you know what I'm saying? I I I just give more of it than other people do. I've met so many people who are so turned off from Christianity because of self-righteous Christians who act like they've invented the faith. They act like they're the reason for all things good happening in their lives. And what do we see in Scripture? We see the absolute opposite, that nobody can take an ounce of credit for anything that we have done because left to ourselves, we're in darkness. Here's what Paul says in Philippians 2 and 13. He says, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. What does it mean to will? It means that it is God who puts a desire in you in the first place to do what's right. And it is God who puts his ability inside of you to work. God always takes the first step. There's a Christian author by the name of A.W. Tozer. Uh, He wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. It's an old classic in Christian literature. And he says it like this. Christian theology teaches the doctrine of grace, which briefly stated means this, that before a man can seek God, God must have first sought the man. Before a sinful man can think right, uh, a right thought of God, there must have been a work of enlightenment done within him. We We pursue God because and only because he has first put an urge within us that spurs us to the pursuit. No man can come to me, said our Lord, except the Father which has sent me draw him. And it is by this very drawing that God takes from us every vestige of credit for the act of coming. The impulse to pursue God to pursue God, originates with God, but the outworking of that impulse is our following hard after him. And all the time we are pursuing him, we are already in his hand. Your right hand upholds me. In this divine upholding and human following, there is no contradiction. All is of God, for God is always previous. Uh, basically A.W. Tozer is saying that your dusty self can't take credit for anything. God is always previous. In the incarnation we see this, and so it should give us a great deal of uh, humility, but it also should give you a lot of hope. What's the thing that discourages you the most about you? Every terrible decision that I've made, I've been a part of. I have never met anybody that has caused me as much frustration as I have myself. I have never met anybody who has made enough decisions that have harmed me as much as I myself have made. And how are you going to beat you? This is why Paul says in Romans seven twenty four, who will save me from this great body of death? But thanks be to God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It means that there is an external help coming for you that you don't have to rely on yourself. Years ago, I read a book called The Emperor of Maladies, and it's a It's a book on cancer, and it's a profound book if you've ever uh, been around someone who's dealt with cancer. It's just a a long history on it. And one thing that the author talks about, which is so profound, is this concept that cancer is much different than a virus or a bacteria, because whatever medicines we want to introduce, you're trying to kill human cells. It's not a bacteria that you can target. It's not a virus that you can hopefully target. It's basically, he says, like trying to find a drug that kills your left ear but keeps your right ear intact. This is why one of the best hopes for you if you have cancer is a surgical resection of the disease to take it out. Someone coming from the outside because it's really hard for you to beat you. No matter what drugs we introduce into your system. When we say that God comes first, God makes the first step, what we're saying is there's an outside help promised to us in Jesus that's coming to save us from us. And there's great hope because it means that you don't have to rely on yourself. Uh, The second thing this means, the incarnation means, is that God is for you. Now, that's a simple statement that I wish to God I have fully absorbed in my own heart. How, How many of you right now pray like God is really for you? How many of you wake up in the morning believing this? thinking this, comforted by this, motivated by this, that God himself is truly for you. One of the things that incarnation means is that God is for you. Last year, I was watching uh, a, a true crime documentary on my HBO Go account, uh, also known as my parents' HBO Go account. <laughs> I ain't got that nine ninety nine 99 or whatever it is, but... Uh, <laughs> And I love true crime documentaries and podcasts. If you see me in the cafeteria after, if you have some recommendations, please let me know. Uh, But in the documentary, it was one called The Witness. And it's a a documentary about a crime that took place in 1964 in Kew Gardens uh, where a woman named Kitty Genovese was stabbed. The documentary was really uh, interesting because it was a look back on why nobody did anything to help. Kitty Genovese was attacked on her way home, and she was screaming out, help, help, someone is stabbing me, help, someone is stabbing me. Witnesses saw lights go on inside of apartments. There were people who were alerted to what was going on, to the cries beneath them, but nobody came down. Nobody wanted to risk their own physical safety for the stranger screaming for help, and unfortunately, uh, the assailant left and then came back five minutes later, realizing that nobody was there, and he killed her. Nobody came down because they didn't want to risk it. What is the incarnation telling us? That God came down. God heard the cries of his people, and he responded. And not just at the risk of his own life, but at the cost of his own life, God came down to intervene in our stories, that we wouldn't be left screaming to ourselves, God help, God help. But at the, risk of, at the cost of his own life, Jesus came down. Why would he come down? Because he's for you. Paul says it like this in Romans 5, but God demonstrates or proves uh, his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Uh, what is that saying? It's saying that God, beyond your wildest imagination, is for you. The third thing that the Incarnation tells us is one of the most profound truths is that God feels what you feel. God feels what you feel. Man, have you ever gone through something like really hard? What's the first thought that comes to your mind? It just makes you feel really isolated and alone. Like you could be in a room surrounded by people and still feel alone. If none of those people know what you're feeling It just makes you want to remain quiet and not talk to anybody about it. But if someone utters some of these powerful words that they understand, that they truly understand, not that they just say that they understand, because some people just talk crazy. I'll never forget when my late wife was sick with cancer. Someone was like, yo, your wife has cancer. I was like, yeah, man. He was like, yo, bro, I understand exactly how you feel. I was like, word. He was like, yo, my cat, bro. My cat got sick. And he had cancer and, you know, Skittles, he'd been in the family for like 12 years. And the cast name wasn't Skittles, but I don't. Um but for someone who truly understands what you feel, it's life changing. I remember conversations I've had with other guys who were in my same situation and just hearing their voice, knowing that they felt what I felt changed everything. Uh, my father-in-law passed away last month and um, uh, a lot of people sent a lot of really warm wishes and cards and notes to my wife And, uh, you know, she was very grateful and is grateful for all of the condolences. But there was a couple people who stood out above everyone else who offered their condolences. Uh, One of them was her cousin. Uh, Her cousin had lost her mother uh, a couple of years ago and had a, a really fantastic relationship with her mother. And her expressing her condolences just mattered a whole lot more than everyone else. Why is that? Because she understood what she felt. There's a scripture in Hebrews that says that we do not have a high priest, Jesus, who cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmities, but he was at all points tempted, yet remained without sin. The incarnation means that God himself came down and he felt what we felt. Have you ever felt betrayed by somebody who you thought was down for you or should have been down for you and they just turned their back on you? Jesus knows what that feels like. Have you ever felt abandoned? Jesus knows what that feels like. Have you ever felt crushed? Jesus knows what that feels like. There's a story about an old x-ray technician that uh, for years and years lacked the bedside manner that was supposed to be appropriate. That clients would come down, oftentimes with ailments, and he would be contorting their bodies and turning them and throwing them around the table in painful ways. But one day, he himself had a kidney stone, and he had to get on the table. And he says that after he himself had to get on the table, he treated everybody differently. Because now he knew what it felt like to be on the table. Christianity goes beyond any other religion that says that God hears you. This one says that God himself was on the table, and he feels you. So much so that this is one of the most profound things that I've, that I've uh, thought about um, and, and heard and read. Uh, have you ever, like, prayed and felt like God just did not get close to you? You might not admit it, but you felt like God kind of abandoned you. Jesus knows what that feels like. In the garden, uh, on the cross, Jesus is praying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God knows what it feels like to be forsaken by God. There is nothing in our human experience that Jesus doesn't understand, and this should radically change the way that we pray. It should radically change uh, the way that we approach God, because we have a God who understands what we feel at the deepest level of our humanity. Fourth thing about uh, the incarnation is that man, God deserves all of you. Like, if it's true that Jesus is God come to, come to the earth and he has shown us the way, like, what part of your life should you, like, withhold from him? Should you be like, yeah, Jesus, but I'm just going to do me with X, Y, or Z. I'm just going to, uh, yeah, I, I'm going to take it from here, Jesus. Thank you very much. If it's true that Jesus is God come to earth, everything he says really isn't optional for our lives. And we would be crazy to take life into our own hands and go away from what he would have us to do. Years ago, when I first graduated law school, um, from time to time, I would have to cover a case for another attorney. And this time, I had to cover a case for my mother. And uh, it was a case in family court. My mother is one of the most profound attorneys this side of the Mississippi. Um, She has, yes, give it up for my father's clapping. At this time, she was a part-time judge um, and a part-time attorney. She has done every type of trial you can think of. She is profound in the courtroom. Me, at that time, not so much. I was about 30 days out of law school uh, from passing the bar, and uh, my mother sent me on this case, and she sends me with this long list of stuff to do, and I'm nodding like, yep. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing. I got to the courtroom, true story, I didn't even know what side of the courtroom to stand on. So I was like, 50-50, let's go left. We're going to go left. That was the wrong side. We're going to go right. We're going to go right. And um, I'll never forget her client's reaction to me after I rode the struggle bus for like 15 minutes in the courtroom and did a horrendous job stuttering my way through the entire presentation, trying to read my mother's handwriting and just say what I heard other people say right before me. I remember the client looking at me and saying like, are you going to be the attorney... (laughs) going forward, or is your mother coming back? (laughs) I was like, she's coming back, and she was like, whew, thank God, thank God. (laughs) One of the most interesting things, though, was when I was trying to give her advice, she was looking at me like, nah, bro, I'm gonna wait to see what your mom has to say about that. Why would she submit her life? Why would she put her future in my hands when I wasn't good enough? Well, my mother no problem whatsoever. She knew she was able to truly guide her through life. She was able to take her most precious and vulnerable matter and guide her and navigate it and handle it in a a way that was better than what she could do on her own. What is John telling us in the Incarnation? That the Jesus that we have received is not a watered-down version of God, but he's God himself. What part of God himself should you keep for yourself? What part of God himself should you say, I'm not going to follow? Uh, yeah, yeah, I know it says this. I know Jesus will be talking about that, but I'm just going to still make my own mind up. John is telling us this, that if the words of the prophets and the ancient were binding, how much more is the incarnate Son of God who has come to us? Man, I, I know this to be true in your lives and certainly in my life. There are pieces of me that is always tempted to withhold and think that I'm, in, I'm better suited to handle. What the Incarnation tells us is that that is an absolute terrible way to go about life. God himself has come to show us the way to live for us, to to take our sins. Yes, but he calls us to to follow him. Here's one thing you'll see if you read the New Testament. It's a crazy concept. Jesus just says like, yo, come follow me. People are like, where are we going? He's like, let's just start walking. (laughs) The journey of faith is like that. The journey of faith is not filled with certainty and explanations and directions. It's a call to follow him. You know what one of my big hopes is uh, for today and for going forward? That for people who are at Renaissance to, to make up in your mind that I don't have all the answers, but I do want to trust Jesus with my life going forward. One of the most profound things about baptism is that it is a sign of dying with him and also being raised with him, and it's basically a witness just saying, I give up control of my life. And this is why it's such a profound uh, sacrament for us to witness. People saying, I don't have all the answers, but I'm just going to trust Jesus to take me forward. And he is well capable to do that with your life. Now, the last thing that is profound about the incarnation is that God wants to work through you. So God takes the first step. God is for you. God feels what you feel. God deserves all of you. And God wants to work through you. The incarnation means that God does his best work up close and personal. And if you think about it, lives have been routed and rerouted, changed uh, based on uh, one single encounter with God. There's so much scripture that shows, that shows when Jesus would encounter someone and their life going forward would be radically changed going forward. Now, it's not just that, but God uh, calls us to be his hands and his feet. God does his best work. Up, and clo- up close and personal. And so many people have experienced life change based on a personal encounter. Uh, there's a story about Cassius Clay, uh, who would later be known as Muhammad Ali, uh, one of the top three, if not the best boxer to ever live. Uh, Cassius Clay was about 12 years old, and he was in a department store one day with some of his friends. And he gets out of the department store and he sees his bike on the street missing. Cops pull up and see young Cassius Clay on the sidewalk crying. The cop says, you know, hey, why are you crying? He says, someone stole my bike, and when I see him, I'm going to whip him real good. The cop says, well, if you're going to whip somebody, you probably should learn how to fight. That cop takes Cassius Clay to the gym and teaches him how to box. And he would go on to be one of the best boxers and certainly the best trash talker this world has ever known. (laughs) What changed his life? a personal encounter. Jesus seeks to change lives based on personal encounters, and he enlists his people, the people who have placed their faith in him, to be his hands and his feet. And if you're looking for yourself to be enough for someone else, it ain't you. But as the scripture says in Colossians 1 and 27, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's not you. It's his incarnate Christ who not just has come to earth, but he lives and breathes through us and desires, to work through us, to encounter people who are far away from him, but they're close to you. One of the things that I've been blown away with this past week has been reading through different stories and reading through different things from five years ago and six years ago. And one of the crazy things that we did um, in my apartment when we first started Renaissance was we passed out index cards to people and said, I just want you to dream, dream. What might God do through us as a church community? some people wrote that we would grow in our relationships with God. And over the past five years, I've seen people really grow. It's been incremental, but it's been absolutely ridiculous for me to watch people truly grow. There's been times where I've been talking to my wife and been like, yo, the Holy Spirit is really real because if he changed, then like, yo, God is real, yo, straight up. I was looking at the old pictures, and the first baptism we did was a woman named Amber Field, and now Amber leads our women's ministry, and, we're teaching, and she's training on how to be a communicator and to teach and to preach and all these different things. And to see people grow, it is a profound blessing, and I've seen it. And that first group just dreamed of what God can do in people's lives, some of that growth that you've experienced in your own life. Some other people wrote that we would love others radically. I've heard so many stories of people who were on the brink of losing their mind, And then people came around them and did some unthinkable things, gave them thousands of dollars when their rent was out of control, Uh, stopped by hospital beds and, and walked with people through the darkest times of life and walked with people through the happiest times of life. And I've seen people form as family here to love other people radically. And the other one is to see our neighborhood renewed. Now, this one is a work in progress. But it's crazy to see what all that has happened through people at Renaissance and how God is using people here to impact Harlem, the Bronx, and now even Brooklyn. You have no idea what God can do through a surrendered people. You have no clue. What does the next five years look like? Well, five years from now, when we sit here or somewhere else, what's going to be our story? And here's what I want you to do. On your way in or when you had to raise your hands in shame because you didn't take a, a program, you should have gotten a, a, a program with a, an index card. And in the cafeteria, there's, a, there's a, wall, a wall, a board, for us to dream together of how God might work through you, how God might work through us in the next five years here in Harlem. And I want you to dream big. What, might, what does God want to do in you? What does God want to do through you? What does one of God, God want to do through us? And there's no limit to what God can do through a surrendered people. Can you pray for us? God, our Father, I am grateful that life does not depend on us. That is not left to, we're not left to ourselves, to our own ability or skill or intellect or passion or drive. But you are light in darkness and you can lead us going forward. Father, help us to see the unique ways that you want to use us as a community, as individuals, to be your hands and to be your feet. God, help us to trust that you will be with us wherever we go. Jesus, let me pray. Amen.